Hello and welcome to this, which is actually our 12th free webinar of the 2017 Smart Building Series. It's our last one for the year and we are talking about uh, from smart cities to conscious cities and we have with us today Josh Artis from the Centric Lab and I'll introduce you to him in a bit or actually I'm probably going to get him to, to do that because he knows more about what he's doing than I do. Um, Obviously, just want to say a thank you to our sponsor, Project Haystack. Uh, they are an open source project with the goal of simplifying data for the Internet of Things. And I'd encourage everybody to go and check out their website, which is project-haystack.org. Uh, definitely worth getting involved in that project. They're using and being able to tag, semantically tag different objects and sensors and all that kind of stuff to, to help make sense of all the data that, that these things are collecting. Um, also, just need to let you guys know that we are now on SoundCloud and iTunes, so you can find recordings of all the webinars that we've done on both of those. You can also subscribe to our content. You just need to go there, search for Smart Building Series. And of course, if you like what you hear, then please leave us a recommendation or share it with your colleagues. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, and as always, what we will do is we'll be posting the audio recording and the show notes to our website, which is memory.com. So yeah, I'd just like to introduce now uh, Josh Artis. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm very well, James. Very well. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us. And obviously, we appreciate you taking the time. Tell us a bit about um, yourself, your background, and also what the Centric Lab do. Sure. Uh, so I have uh, spent most of my professional career working in London, joining the uh, professional world in September 2008, which is very interesting time to uh, go out hunting for a job. Uh, what it was interesting is that building a career working around the edges of the creative industries, technology and real estate gave a great understanding of where there were sort of fault lines in markets. So I was um, fascinated by working in the locations industry at seeing these big office campuses that were vacant and tenants had disappeared and buildings were being sold and demolished and all this sort of stuff going on and looking macroeconomically what, what was going on um, around. And then I joined a, um, I joined a young guy who had just raised some money to start a website, uh, like a sort of a retail Airbnb, and it's called Appear Here. And on the sort of business development side, it was all about going out to property owners of small shops all the way to large shopping centers, saying, look, there's an emerging market out here. People are demanding better experience, better quality from the places they go. They want to interact and learn more and experience different things. And so what we were saying, well, look, here's a tool in how to achieve that. And it, that combination of sort of looking at a, a post-recession like real estate market, mostly coming out of London and the suburbs around, and then joining an industry that was about the new creative industries uh, intersecting and using technology to animate high streets and how property owners can understand that better, I started to learn more about how actually what experience was and how placemakers, developers, and people like that were trying to understand how could we forward plan and curate these places so that we would be as, as effective as possible. And that's at the time when I um, met someone who was a neuroscientist who was looking at the relationship of how, uh, what was going on actually in their co-working space that they had started to understand why are certain people behaving as they are? What, what are the reasons behind this? Is it the space? Is it the people? And through neuroscience, they 
I went off and studied this further and then joined forces with an architect after we'd done a conference called Conscious Cities and three of us formed a company called Centric Lab which is a consultancy that's based in London uh, that does uh, bespoke R&D for companies in helping them understand how through the lens of neuroscience they can build a much more sort of methodical and practical understanding of how people you know people as users as citizens as workers whatever they may be perceive their environments and in turn how they function in response biologically psychologically and uh, cognitively so we work for people all across the built environment spectrum from end users and occupiers through the construction and architectural industry to the development and planning it's all about how do we understand people how can we build a robust method in using um, big data or whatever we want to call it or shallow data to understand what is actually going on and how someone perceives what they're doing and are you designing environments that are actually catered for what they want to they want to have they want to enjoy they want to go out and experience more wow okay amazing stuff and i want to obviously dig in and pick out some bits that you mentioned there um one thing i did forget to say to everybody if you have any questions for josh or indeed myself then please type them in i'll get them here and then I can I can ask them. So yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to um, to ask um, any questions that they want. Um, Josh, I thought it was interesting that you know, obviously, what we're trying to talk about here is a conscious city. So and so two things I think. One is what what is your how do you view neuroscience? What is it, and why are you applying it to the built environment? Uh, and then secondly sure. to that. Um, what what is a conscious city and do you do you i mean because we're throwing around a lot of terms not so obviously you i mean i mean just the industry in general um so where how do you think that there is a difference there between let's say a smart city and a conscious city okay two questions there so um for the first one what is neuroscience? Well, we, we focus on a sector called cognitive neuroscience. And uh, but neuroscience in general looks at the chemical substrates that underpin cognition. It is a very physical and chemical and biological based science. And um, what it underpins cognition is it's understanding how the body in turn from the visual system to the auditory system to the olfactory system, so everything from sense and touch how that is fed into the body and whatever mechanism it is and how the brain interprets that and that's where neuroscience becomes interesting because you start to look at well actually what are the sizes of these rooms doing what are the levels of light doing to how someone is trying to perform a task with neuroscience you get these decades and decades of amazing uh, work that researchers across the world uh, from San Diego all the way to Tokyo via people that we're partnered with at University College London have been researching heavily and heavily about how people are choosing to navigate, how their mobility works, how light is affecting their, uh, their ability to concentrate on certain tasks. And so there is a bedrock of information out there that gives us a very sort of empirical and methodical approach to understanding what the physical comforts, you know, your traditional built environment comforts of um, noise, air quality, lights, sounds, uh, or, you know, perhaps spatial orientation um, start to have an effect on, on someone's sort of ability. The interesting thing about neuroscience and where the field is going to expand going further uh, subject to sort of the right funding departments coming through is that when, when trying to get an understanding of what actually people are doing, how they're experiencing, 
uh, devices such as mobile EEG, and uh, forgive me, I'm not going to try and pronounce the very long word that it is, um, but it's essentially those skull caps that you often see people wear, where there are up to anywhere from I think four to 128 nodes attached to the brain, well, sorry, attached to the skull that looks to just read activity on the brain. And what this is great by a mobile point of view is that we can start taking this idea and this concept out of very controlled environments in the lab and start taking people out into the wild. I think the interesting and exciting benefit about taking into the wild is, look, it's all great for uh, the majority of us who live and work in cities that are very able-bodied, you've got great sense of mind, your ability to navigate and handle complex environments is fine, but the reality is we have a lot of questions to sort of solve within our cities. Um, we have a lot of people to cater for, and there are those who are perhaps less, less able, less set up from the very beginning. Um, you know, autism, for example, is a uh, is a spectrum that's being diagnosed more and more and more amongst many people um, just through the awareness of what it becomes. It's a spectrum. It's not one plus one. It's a multitude of things. And the interesting things that we need to take aware of is that just because someone perhaps has an element of uh, autism that really builds up their anxiety and their difficulty navigating, that shouldn't impede their experience, the quality and how they enjoy an environment. And what EEG devices and others will start to include is a better real-time understanding of what elements are out there that are affecting people. Is it the visual sight lines they see? Is it the big roads? Is it the boring facades? Is it the buses that come flying past us in different ways? And I am mainly talking about cities um, with how this works. So neuroscience is a bedrock of information um, in how we start to look more mechanically, perhaps underpinning sort of psychology with a bit more sort of mechanical approach, like looking at the sort of engine or the, you know, the, the if I always like to liken the idea that neuroscience is to engineering, what perhaps architecture is to psychology, where architecture plays more, it goes with intuition, it looks to love and caress. Neuroscience is trying to go, how will that stand up? Will that move over there? that doesn't make sense. So it gives us this bedrock and it also gives us a, an ability to ask questions of people and then in a real-time way analyze that data to look at this sort of virtuous feedback loop to understand are we doing what we set out to do? We've got a lot on our plates. Are we achieving what we're A, being paid for, what we're being graded for, and what actually what we're responsible for in how we build the built environment? So I hope that understands where we look at what the, the impact that neuroscience uh, can provide to the industry. So um, if you want, I can go on to the second question. If you want, I can uh, I can stop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, well, I've, I've got some follow-up stuff. But yeah, tell me what you, you sort of your, um, do you think there's a difference between, let's say, a conscious city and a smart city? I think that's sure. definitely something that's worth asking. Yeah, so I, I think you can't get to a conscious city without smart city. And I think it is in, integral that we do understand and improve efficiencies. A lot of research that we are doing shows the, the importance um, it, behind basic features and factors of city life, such as good quality street lighting and water, are integral to, to human health. And so there's no point having this idea of a conscious city, um, which, I, which I'll get to if we not, can't even do the basics. So a, a, a conscious city, as we like to call it, and it's actually a, a term we give to a research movement and, con and um, conference series that we help uh, put on, is a term that uh, is about how cities are aware 
adaptive and responsive to human needs. And that's applying uh, data analysis with any forms of sort of AI, if we want to use that, with uh, cognitive sciences in architecture design. And so we start to look at, well, if, if we've got the city, if we've got the traffic lights moving fine, how are people understanding, are they enjoying that movement of vehicles around and how is a city autonomously understanding perhaps human sentiment and so we start to look at well if we've got sensors trying to work out how how cars are moving past what are we looking at with regards to sensors of how uh, noise is perhaps impacting local residents and we start to start to ask those types of questions so stage one is interpreting and it's data collection and interpretation uh, this will still be a very human-led action in trying to understand, actually, we've got a bit of a blockage here. There's there's a traffic jams. We can see we're, we're not, you know, no families walk down this road. Is that fair? What is, is a family's journey being diverted? Because the impact of walking down this street or this high street or this road is too great that they're having to avoid. And is their journey 10 minutes longer now? You start to ask those questions. Over time, when we talk about the cognitive sciences and neuroscience, it's, it's, it's a great way to build up. And I think this is what a lot of people in AI will talk about, is that you know, neuroscience is going to give us the more biologically plausible technology. It's going to give us the ability to perhaps build empathy. It's, it's it, within technology. It's going to help understand the nuances it's never it's something that I've learned, and I must say I'm not a neuroscientist. I wish I was as smart uh, to, to be one, but I do get to work with fantastically smart people uh, who do that. And uh, one of which is a chap called Dr. Spears, who is at uh, UCL, um, and he sits on the ethics board of DeepMind, and it's fascinating to talk to him, and he often sees that neuroscience is just, amongst many things, it's a great way to ask questions about people, because you, you learn so much about how it's not one plus one. Um, a lady called Araceli Camargo, who I um, co-founded Centric Lab with, she is our sort of lead neuroscientist. She developed out the uh, framework from which we do everything as a company. And from her point of view, it you know she gave me this great analogy that the the brain is like a symphony. It's like an orchestra. You you know if you and if you look at the orchestra, one violinist can drop out but the symphony is still there, it still plays. And so it doesn't mean that one plus one equals two all the time when looking at, um, at how you interpret decision-making on people. And this is where the, perhaps the sort of ethical questions come about where, where AI or whatever we want to call it is trying to make rash judgments of people and their behaviors. Neuroscience is asking more and more questions going, actually, is it this or is it that? Is it this plus that plus this plus that? And looking forward, so it gives us a lens to take the idea of, great, we've got a technology-led city that is efficient, now let's start asking questions to make it effective for how people are going to navigate, how they're going to play, how they're going to create jobs. And the more we understand about our mental health, the more we understand about cognition, the more we understand about how we achieve what we want to achieve, and ultimately how we are happy, um, although no scientist really likes that term, happy, as I keep getting told, the more we understand about how the mind works and as a result from learning how the brain works, we can start to look at cities that are a lot more human-centric, cities that uh, enable the best of our lives to come through. Otherwise, why on earth are we creating all this technology if it's not actually for our own you know, human benefit? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I mean, definitely some things I'd like to kind of pick out about what you, you discussed and maybe like try and sort of put it in a practical context, I guess, for people li listening. Uh, you mentioned there, for example, um, EEG, like mobile EEG um, equipment. So basically, you know, you're saying you can take um, this this equipment that measures, I get is some is some kind of activity in the brain, right? So you can make, can you measure what what exactly does that does that measure? It's interesting because it measures activity, and I believe this about the uh, that goes on through the cortex, which is just this layer on top of your brain, just underneath the skull. Um, there, there is a caveat with all with all these sorts of things. Is that it's all it does is it's going to show stimulation. It's not going to show, you know, uh, curiosity, or it's not going to show happiness. It's not going to show emotions. It's going to show activity. So we're we're really talking about how intense was an environment. So, mm. um, uh, so at, at UCL, uh, and I, I've mentioned his name a couple of times, and it's great to to work with him. And I think he he's one of the sort of the leaders in taking neuroscience out into the environment. So um, uh, Hugo Spears, who works at UCL, is a he's involved in spatial cognition and this is where this is where sort of our team intersect with him is that um Aricelli who leads our sort of neuroscience research looks at how people attain uh the things around them what do they pay attention to you know is, is, it, is, is it the lights in what features what aspects are grabbing most of the attention and do they make sense and then what what I've learned from spatial cognition which is where Hugo does a lot of his work is how based on what I see and what I know and what I do how do I choose to navigate what do I remember do I build up these things called cognitive maps based mm. off images based off buildings based off streets based off experiences that I had and this is last part to add to this sort of triumvir is uh, memory and so after a period of time we build up this memory of uh, oh yeah I remember this road I went down oh yeah I cycled that road the other day I can cut back there and go around there and this is really looking at how we are paying attention to our environment building these maps and how we can choose to go through them so something like EEG which is a very complicated device I mean, don't get me wrong there uh, it's not a simple thing by any means it's the the neurotech industry is in need of a lot of investment um, and it's not investment in the fact that the, the technology it's the research and time to build out the toolkits to say it is valid for industry to start saying yes we can use this this device here is going to let us achieve this so I know I know that's a little bit ambiguous but I want to be sure that um, people who have listened to this is aware that EEG um, you know those skull caps that people sort of put to their heads they often have to carry around a backpack that is full of a very heavy laptop that is sending information off and recording information and what they can do so if we take the EEG and you can get devices as I said to have a few nodes that would just I'll go oh there's a bit of activity to something where 128 where they might be able to uh, th through sort of a statistical analysis understand ah this region was more active and so what it means is that we can start to look at how how much what cognitive load how much memory our brain you know how much RAM we were trying to actually use to get to a certain area so you know in in, in London designing the uh, the uh, I think it's the Queen Elizabeth Park in Stratford uh, it's a very disorientating environment to actually try and get through and this is where you might have had these types of technologies to help um, whether it be 
you know, fortunately uh, able persons such as myself, but what about elderly people? And how, how do they remember and attain their environment? Um, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia is, is a very complicated um, uh, sort of disease that hits the brain in, in a number of different ways. But through this sort of early analysis of how people forget and remember, what once, once you can't pay attention to your environment, it becomes more and more difficult to remember where to go. And it's why we often see that level of disorientation. Sometimes we don't see and remember these things. So taking EEG out of the lab gives us an ability to understand how difficult and how impactful is an environment on someone being able to navigate through. So, I mean, that is a very sort of social um, benefit to looking at something like EEG. And in, in, in truth, that's where most of its benefits will lie. When it comes to perhaps, you know, looking at large uh, shopping centers, it can be helpful, but it's, you know, science needs a problem to solve. And I think the problem does come from those who may not be sort of as easily and able-minded, how they are going to experience. So if it is a shopping center, you know, something like the, the ones they're building in Dubai, these mega, mega centers, they may not have the health issues just yet, but this might come in the future. And what does it mean to have disorientated people uh, lost and moving around? Um, you know, are there cues in the environment that people are more cognizant of? They can remember easier. They can build their confidence in paths as they move around. So I think that's that's an example of where it can be used. Um, equally, you can use things like EEG in the lab when people are going through different uh, VR testing, so AB testing. But again, I, I'm just sort of throwing where these combinations can go. Uh, everything is actually quite bespoke it's not as just sort of simple as, oh let's stick someone up to a, an EEG and we'll, we'll get some information it's always about how do we under we've got a problem this is a tool the technology is also a tool um what questions are we asking and how are we going to record that and I think that that's the opportunity of taking these like sort of neurotechnologies um and starting to ask questions when we're looking at built environment problems of designing new urban realms or designing large open sort of public private spaces like shopping malls <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I I was just trying to, I guess, work out in my own mind: is this something that is <clears throat> that is a tool that can be used, or hope maybe you know, not now, but maybe in the future, by designers to really um, help them design better human-centric buildings or, or spaces for people. So you know, I, I was thinking perhaps you know, you, let's take in just a, a commercial office space. You mentioned retail. Equally, you could. You could think maybe about sort of uh, commercial office, you know, about how they could potentially, you know, optimize that space and, and make it um, as efficient as possible for people to navigate around. Yeah. And I, uh, oops, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just, and I was just going to finish off because I, I thought the other thing that it might be might be useful for as well is just looking at, um, you know. Uh, and combining it with BIM, for example. So I, hopefully, we're going to get to a point where we can we can use the BIM model in in building to create three D environments that then could be could be A B tested, right? Uh, and then I guess maybe you could use an ECG with for for people who are walking through this this uh, virtual reality of, of the building to see how they how they perceive it. Cool. So I think the best way to look at 
perhaps the technology is a part of a sort of a pre and a post occupancy evaluation mm -hmm. yeah. um, as it stands the sort of the field of neuroscience um and it, look, i'm try i'm not trying to sort of sell our business i know it sounds salesy but it's something <laughs> that we are um we're, we're we're working on which is how do you look how do you take the understandings uh, through a framework um and apply these to sort of pre-planning design so how you, you you know you're right in the retail sector and the office sector um this is all about how do we be as effective as we can you know retail costs are high office space is very expensive fit out costs continue to go high and equally um, you know a one percent drop in productivity for a, you know a large corporation completely nullifies any sort of you know uh, real estate uh, consolidation in costs for example so there's a lot of pressure on architects and designers and contractors and construction and engineer people to understand how do we how do we be as effective in the beginning as we can so uh, there is enough of a body of research to start going okay retail um, you know what questions are you trying to answer from your space you know who who are the demographics you're trying to appeal to um what do you want them to achieve so you start to look at uh you know what is happening to attention spans of certain demographics and you can start to look at what different visuals have been responsive to being uh, acknowledged or shared and you start to look at coordinating different physical elements and it's a little bit like walking into some stores and just being bombarded with information and then there's walking into certain stores maybe like a cos or a you know a really nice ralph lauren store and feeling like you've just walked into a room that is very calm and orchestrated and you can see the different behavioral responses so in pre-design when it comes to something like a retail or an office you want to start looking at um you know what are the users tasks that they're trying to achieve so in, in an office a task would be concentration or memory recall um, which you might find a lawyer is needing to perform equally if in a creative agency you're looking at much more the cognitive sides of actually they, they need a lot of empathy and cognitive flexibility in order to take on teams ideas take on you know their friends idea process that idea think about that idea and then actually question it internally with a positive response I mean that's what we mean by collaboration so you know that's almost a very sort of like there's a sort of cognitive psychology approach to looking at well people perform tasks we get that now we understand what their tasks are from this sort of point of view what are what does science have to say about the physical elements that sometimes get in the way of that so what is a crazy journey taking um, a metro or an underground uh, to get to work and it takes you know an hour and 20 minutes and you're hunched over and all of a sudden you're looking at the um, ergonomically your body is restricted you know anyone who's into yoga will tell you the importance of uh, you know the, the, the way that your body will lead to a sense of you know mental well-being equally if you're on the underground or you're on a bus and you're constantly breathing in pollutants again your body is fighting it's fighting it's building up it's it, it, it's building up a resistance to what it is trying to do equally there are chemicals processes that go through the body that affect other chemical processes and this is this is what we look at through neuroscience so in the early days it's starting to look at how do you understand uh, a person's you know world around them what they're trying to do and then when it comes to the actual space that's in question you you've got a series of things that you're trying to tackle and mitigate otherwise all you're doing is adding complications sometimes you actually want to have something completely desensitized and something orchestrated or ways that you can allow someone to have the autonomy or 
understand what actually well what are the physical comforts that go beyond the you know the standards of the you know light you know good quality lighting um and lighting doesn't mean just loads of natural light that's an, another myth there's different light sources for different tasks so an architect needs to know well if i've got loads of software engineers in this office natural light isn't going to be great from not only computer glare but from visual you know the visual system becoming tired from trying to process too much light if they can see too many things in their environment dotted around the office these are visual distractions and all of a sudden you're starting to see hang on too much light is, can be tiring on our eyes. Yes, circadian rhythm is good, but uh, circadian rhythm lighting is good for us, but too much lighting can be tiring. All of a sudden, there are too many visual distractions. I'm seeing an obvious line towards productivity here and someone having the physical productivity, sense of agency to achieve their tasks as easily as possible. And so you start to add all these things up to get a curated plan. Now, when it comes to perhaps the technologies you start to look at um i mean where we are looking at things is you can take things like eeg but you can also take um eye tracking uh devices to understand uh concentration patterns and distractions uh if someone's trying to perform a task like a cognitive task on a computer which is really a sort of an advanced iq test as such so you know if you've got this great plan of moving um a corporation a big uh company into a big new office and you've got these intentions of we've got to increase productivity we've also got to utilize uh, desk space more effectively what are you know where are my balances where are my uh, uh sort of balance offs appearing and uh, it's not the right phrase i know it's not but um and how do i orchestrate these elements so that when i do post occupancy and we can use uh cognitive tasks to test people's uh, memory recall or their ability to uh, perhaps have theory of mind in an environment that you know might be have been busier before but their theory of mind earlier on to to care more about the people around them or the tasks that they're trying to perform. You start to look at the technologies around neurotechnology to give a multiple, I guess, a, uh, a more dynamic way of answering the questions that you set in the beginning. It's no longer, oh, are you happy at work? We can look at both perhaps the, the, uh, the conscious and the sort of subconscious elements to our um sort of the task we're trying to perform and just just to end there there was a study um that came out not too long ago that was looking at vegetation and they were trying to understand uh what is the best type of vegetation is it really intense greenery that's outside everywhere or is it simple greenery and they actually they, they found that um when they strapped people up through uh, whatever i think it was through an eeg they noticed that um people consciously said oh i um i really prefer this this type of greenery but they actually then noticed uh through another series of tests that they were responding the exactly same way to to, to another uh, environment and it was almost inconclusive it was almost hang on how what are we trying to pay attention towards here so you can't just rely on one thing or the other so when it comes to this idea of well let's just send out a post-occupancy evaluation of are you happy at work someone might just go yes but actually deep inside they might be actually feeling very anxious about the orientation that they might not know about it because it's one thing is for sure is that we really don't understand ourselves greatly um we know more about the surface of mars than we do about what's under the ocean and what's often inside our head so 
the use of technology should be dynamic, it should be uh, another data source, and it should be about improving our margins of error in how we look at sort of product design and office design and sort of engineering our urban environments. Yeah, there's some great points there. I know that it's a, you know, study of the brain, all this kind of stuff is something that is in its infancy, really. Our, our understanding of how our brains work isn't, um, is getting better, but we're still learning a lot, aren't we? Yes, there's, there's a long way to go. Um, I, I think those that work in, you know, in AI will, you know, that those sort of, you know, neuroscientists who work in AI say that, hey, this is great. We're looking at neural networks, but we're also not looking at, well, you know, if the neural network is there, what about all the other, you know, what about all the other cells that are working around it? Do we not think that we need to also add those to the equation before we just look at, ah, well, you know, it, this is the neural network we've got to find. There's still a lot to learn, a lot to learn about the brain. And there was, uh, there was, I think it's the University of Southampton last year one of their departments created these uh, memristor chips which were uh, they believe powerful enough to process the amount of uh, connections or sort of uh, yeah network connections um, in, in a sort of an artificial neural network system equivalent to what goes on in the brain and this was a hypothesis mm. this was still uh, but they, you know, this was still, can we even build a model that can handle the complexity and the madness, almost the, the chaotic beauty of, of, of the brain before we then start asking, well, what are we, what are we asking of it? What questions are we trying to set? Um, I think the, the way it look, how we look at predicting the brain is a little bit like how we sort of predict the weather that we can, you know, we can't predict the weather that well. We can say, ah, well, there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow. But you can't really say, well, at 2.38, you're going to get hit by about 14 droplets of rain if you stand exactly at this GPS location. We're not there at that specificity just yet. Um, in truth, I don't think we need to get to that level on, on, on a general sense. Um, when it comes to researching the brain, there are great initiatives uh, being done, particularly I think if we if we keep this built environment focused, people at MIT, um, people at the University of Waterloo in Canada, but also the people at um, UCL are probably the you know that those three are probably the most advanced in how to understand uh, the brain in response to uh, sort of daily lives, urban life, city life, you know, social lives in that way. Mm -hmm. Had a question come in here for you. Uh, one thing that tends to be elusive to measure in buildings is comfort because of the subjectivity of it. Uh, what do you think about using brain devices to measure that? Yeah, um, well, comfort comes in a number of forms. So you've got to set a task to test whether someone's comfort levels have been achieved. I think it, it, it is possible. It's often not necessary to use in sort of over the top brain device. I mean, they're at the moment still relatively expensive. I think with things such as the comfort level, so, you know, it's ergonomics, it's, uh, you know, it's orientation, perhaps navigation, you might look at uh, heat as one of those comforts. But arguably, you can still set up tests 
to look at the effectiveness. So, you know, with ergonomics, it's how many times does someone fidget? How many times does someone need to move to get away? So you start to look at more behavioral responses to um, to, to physical comforts uh, rather than going, oh, should I strap someone up to a machine? Because you can often get quite a, a, a biased response if someone's aware that they're being strapped up to something. But if someone is not perhaps aware, well, they are aware, because obviously you have to be ethically appropriate in that you might be monitoring monitoring someone's behavior in a space. You, you can be setting up tests and protocols to understand uh, how people are choosing to respond to levels of light, to le to respond to levels of um, heat that might be coming through. It, this is all sort of in pre-design work that there is actually enough to guide what types of levels of light in general can be applied to what type of users. The ultimate dosage points is the next stage, and this is ultimately where Centric Lab sets its vision to go out is to understand the dosage and the qualities of, of the physical comforts based on the users and their tasks. So you mentioned BIM before. Mm. Yes, ultimately that is where things will be going. So if you're looking at algorithmic modeling, for example, some of those inputs that you can be putting in is, well, actually, look, these are the users. These are the types of people that are going to be enjoying the space and these are their tasks. So when I'm looking at my window to wall ratios, when I'm looking at my floor to ceiling ratios, when I'm looking at how the light moves, how the sun moves across the sky throughout the year, I start to get a better understanding of what glare is going to do, what these levels of light should be and how much should I be breaking up and how much should I be isolating light. And these inputs are coming through um, slowly slowly so they they will be at that kind of um BIM stages not just yet it's, it's still this is this is something that's going to happen in the future right now the use of neuroscience to look at comfort levels a lot of it can be done in pre-planning design and post by looking at um under how to record people's performance of tasks based perhaps on an a b testing situation do you think you'll be able to then to create a average or generic model for different types of employment so you could say this is this is the type of light uh, uh, let's say a computer programmer is most uh, is going to be uh, most productive given this type of light this temperature um, this spatial orientation and and you know various different um, inputs and the is that something that could be could be possible, or is, everyone, um, or is just everyone different? I think it's important to know. And one of the things that we look at in our formula is you have your sort of top down and bottom up approach. So the top down, for example, is looking at well, what what will work perhaps look like when we're doing it virtually, or we're using augmented reality to perform a lot of our tasks. Um, equally, you know, what is, uh, you know, the existential question is, you know, what is work going to be in 2030? But, you know, if we take this idea of what is learning in 2030, you know, what is, what is the role of uh, perhaps an institution in which you learn um, in 2030? So how do we understand more about the people who perhaps are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old right now? 
um, and their relationship with technology and their relationship with how they're consuming information. Um, and so this starts to build up, you know, when you start to look at people from this point of view, these sort of macro influences on levels of well, you know what are what are the continual levels of anxiety leading to you know I, I know that uh, my my younger half brother who's seventeen um, only recently turned uh, has has for the past two years experienced the, you know the bad end of social media from everything from you know Brexit and Trump and all that nonsense that's gone on for for whatever reason but the systematic constant firing of information builds up a sense of well, you know, it builds up a sense of how they are focusing on what's important to them. So we we take this top-down view of how are they going to respond to a building when actually they live their life only, you know, a foot away from their face. You know, what is important of a building and a space around there? And I, I think, you know, what are the journeys that they're doing to get to somewhere in the morning? What is their physical health? How much do they actually interact with people face-to-face? You know, these are big, big questions that you have to add to a sorry, have to add to an equation to then understand. Ah, well, okay, they may be a software engineer, but they're well, they a software engineer that's solving this type of problem. And actually, how have they got used to solving problems? And so, I, I think when it looking, we don't look at roles as in sort of company roles. It's much more tasks. And I think tasks are easier to focus on and they actually make things more flexible as well. So, you know, you read about, um, you know, the, the big thing about our built environment is it needs to be more resilient. We all, you know, we love the industry for making new buildings, but it's one of the biggest contributors of carbon emissions. And yes, we have green standards, but often knocking a building down and putting up a green standard building takes a long, 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 long time to get the, you know, to offset perhaps the uh, the carbon emissions that were created. So you've got to think about resilience. So you've got to think about adaptability and flexibility. So to pick perhaps roles uh, that might become redundant in five years or 10 years and focus more on how do we look at better ways of collaboration perhaps in these environments based on these relative types of demographics, we start to build a little bit more flexibility, um, but still with a bit of you know, uh, rigidity in, in understanding people better and building environments that are more in tune with how they are trying to perform their tasks. And I keep going back to that because it's not about the top-down view of telling someone or saying, uh-huh, we've controlled you to this point where you're gonna do well here. I think we all have, we all love our sense of agency. We all want to feel that we belong in an environment in which we go, you know what, I did well today. I enjoyed that, I'm going to go back more. I know that I'm in control. I've got the autonomy to find the right spaces that I want. I've got the autonomy and the awareness to be able to go, ah, I remember where that those places were, that, that great shop that I went to. I can build the mental map very easily. I can remember that going backwards. So I, I think it's more about picking on tasks from everything from memory recall to understanding empathy a lot better, and then combining that with slightly more sort of sociological tones to go, ah, I think we're looking at more resilient environments rather than going, let's engineer a specific space for a, a, a software engineer. Um, I think the only time you can look very, very specific in, in how we've just been talking is when you might have a very, very specific human problem 
and that's when you start to look at the, the you know the depths of um, schizophrenia, the 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 very deep deep dark depths of Alzheimer's and dementia. But equally, any scientist uh, and practitioner working in those fields will tell you there's a, there's a long way to go. And in truthfulness, a lot of human care is still probably the most important uh, part of that equation. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, I, I guess my I didn't really phrase my question very well. Because, um, of course, as you said, like, you know, really a role is just a series of tasks, right? Which is why some people are just more um, more in tune or, or, or uh, gravitate towards different kind of roles because they, you know, they, they, they're more predispositioned to that. But I guess what I was just trying to think of was just like, a, you know, a practical example of like designing something, whether it be a building uh, and it could be any type, it doesn't have to be an office. Like you said, it could be, let's say, some kind of uh, institution for looking after uh, mentally ill people. Is there a way or could there be a way of, you know, understanding the the different types of, of light and 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 the uh, the actual environment that would be that is most beneficial to them. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. It's what we're working on. Uh, it's a step by step process. Um, what it needs is a bit of patience. Uh, a lot of a lot of the industry to get more into R and D. Uh, to back more projects, uh, to explore things a little bit more. It will come. It's what yes. industry wants. It's, it's what science can provide. Um, but it is about, the. I think, the patience before saying this is perfect. Mm. I, do, I mean, totally agree with you that obviously it needs, we need, needs to be, investments need to be made in this. But I guess the problem, of course, is, is you know, the, that spend has to be justified. So it is difficult, I think, sometimes when people are making in businesses making decisions that you know they they probably would love to do things like this, but are they do they do they know that they're definitely going to get a payback from it? And I guess that's where academia comes in, right? They, they yeah they can prove that first. This this is the big challenge at the moment. Um, an industry that is trying to evolve uh, to become much more sort of user focused and user sort of human centric and that's because every other sort of service around them has become smart and intuitive and focused on experience from our phones to our homes are even becoming more intuitive to cars um, but even you know the general way we experience going to the theater or going to a gig has become more diverse but when it comes to sort of the infrastructure of our built environment the main sort of macro elements of our space the reality is that the individual players within them whether it be your large real estate developers or certain architectural firms is actually the every product is bespoke every building is bespoke um, oh, there's 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 a book I, I want to say it's Harry's book of investment or something about that um, that I was told that you know it, it, one of its first lines is no two buildings are the same mm -hmm. and this is one of the conundrums is that they're they're at face value is not a huge incentive to look at R&D for scalability because places are so different. And this is where the industry needs to work out what part of their role is scalable and responsible. 
And I think that's where, you know, the intersection of prop tech is helping a lot of property companies go, ah, oh, well, I think this is my bit here. I'm going to specialize architecture as well, looking at what sort of algorithmic modeling technologies can be useful. Um, I think, you know, from our point of view, we just want to be a data feed into some of these models and tools to help those designers make the best decision. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the scalability element is, is still a big issue. It's why people like WeWork have thousands of people in their research and design teams because they can scale their product and marginal gains mean uh, great gains in those way when they can scale and roll out. So it's a question I think the industry needs to come together a lot more on. Um, they're being asked a lot of them. I'm not denying that. It's not an easy job, uh, but equally they make it more complicated for themselves by uh, thinking, oh, can't someone else do it? Oh, that's not up for me. Oh, isn't that the tenant's responsibility? Oh, mm, ah. Uh, Mm, uh, and getting through a whole phrase of actually getting nowhere without going, actually, how can I commit and how can I make more money from this rather than perhaps looking at everything of oh, how, how can I save some money? I think the big question the industry needs to sort of collaborate better on is looking at better income opportunities by perhaps investing and looking into R&D. People are in the um, sort of prop tech market. It's now, you know, I, we see the next stage is applying. You've got the physical data. You've got a lot of spatial data. You've got a lot of market data. Well, the one thing you want is actually understanding humans a lot better, because if you can model and pre-plan better, you're going to sell a more effective product. So it, it, it will take a nudge. It will take, I think, actually a psychological nudge from people within the industry. Uh, fortunately, working in London, um, meeting people such as your same James, as yourself, James, at events that we did, um, there are people asking these questions. So I think the industry is in the right way, um, but there does need to be a lot more in incentives from central government. That's for sure. Uh, equally, academia needs to make sure that it is open in the right ways um, and it's responsive and agile. But I think industry as well needs to take a bit of patience and really look at what research and development in their field is and work out where they can uh, be designing products that can scale best. Yeah, yeah, no, some great points. Um, I think one thing I'd say, I mean, it is obviously, of course, true that no one building is the same, but I wonder if that's just, that's the way that, you know, it's been, the industry has created itself because a lot of the functions of buildings are the same. You know, we, although hospitals are, are built differently by different companies in different ways, ultimately they have the same function. There's mm. no reason why, you know, a operating theatre needs to be different from another one because uh, that's not, let's say, a creative space. It's a, it's a specific space to do a specific job. Why that couldn't then become something that is just modular, that is, that is you know, and I know the industry has been talking about modular design of, for, for a long time. But yeah, anyway. Well, I, I think you're right there, Jason. Just to follow on from almost an earlier point, uh, reference that when you look at more extreme situations, such as an operating theatre, um, you can look into more sort of program design. There is a little bit more scale. Um, I guess a lot of these conversations still tend to focus within the sort of the general world of sort of office design or perhaps mm. the you know large scale residential development because that's what's often at the forefront of our commercial market. But yeah, the more extreme the situation, the more controlled the problem, the more that you know data science um, and design heuristics can be applied with a much more methodical approach.
Yeah, and I just wonder if some of it's baked into the the industry anyway. You know, I mean, for example, um, you know, um, architects know that they're not going to get paid for designing a building that looks exactly like the last building that they did, right? You know, they have to justify the expense and create some, you know, new, exciting-looking, different building. But um, yeah, I, I guess that's what the client wants. So they have to do they have to do what the client wants. But this, this is something that's being questioned at the moment. There are a number of people looking at the, you know, the long-term relationship of designing a building from the beginning. So, you know, the, the contract of the architect, the contract of the developer who might be to build and sell, they're, the sort of social contract, for want of a better phrase, is, well, the effectiveness of what they've built, is it resilient? And is it resilient both in material, but in, in human use as well? Is it redundant after a few years? And actually, is their design more valuable because they've actually focused a lot harder? And it, what I mean by that is there are questions at the moment. I was actually reading a study on post-occupancy analysis in which the researchers were going through and interviewing architects themselves and all saying, to be honest, we don't have a huge incentive to do it because of how we are contracted to perform mm, exactly. our jobs. Yeah. But there but there are people going, well actually, what if what if I actually were able to receive part of the capital uplift or whatever other mechanism behind um uh, the space? If my space, the way I looked at my design was more effective and there were a number of appropriate metrics set to devise whether it was effective as well. So you obviously have to be you know, quite concise in how you would appraise something mm. uh, once it's built. But I, I have the confidence that people are asking these questions. Um, you know, Reba are asking the questions. Uh, thing is, it's it's all about aligning these things and having the incentives. There needs to be financial incentives, there needs to be tax incentives, there needs to be, well, really it all comes down to tax incentives, but it's how can those tax incentives be used to help stimulate ways in which to, in truth, make more money. There's nothing wrong with making money as long as you do it sensibly. Yeah, absolutely. And who knows, maybe they'll, I mean, that could be something that could be driven by standards as well. And obviously the wellness standards, very interesting, but, you know, who knows in the future there might be sort of a standard around you know human centric design or that that you know if, if we can measure all these things then you can get a score based on you know how how humans interact with it uh yes i think you know if, if we were part of those conversations we certainly have something to say i think we'd uh, but equally you wouldn't want to say oh this space will make you healthy it's it's you know it's this space you know might say has been designed with you in mind i, I don't know I, i'm trying to it's important not to be determinist um because i think one practically it's very um messy to be determinist but i think ethically as well uh to be determined no one wants to be determined no one well okay some people do like having, you know, adverts appear that are a little bit creepy, that look like the pair of shoes you were looking at last week, but you still didn't buy. And you find, well, actually, it's a bit of a dumb mechanism because I didn't buy those shoes when I happened to go on Timberland's website or whatever. I didn't buy them. It's a bit stupid that you're now trying to sell me this stuff. So equally, a building telling me, oh, this, you know, this building's going to make you happier. It doesn't 
doesn't quite work like that. So I think there there will be forms of indexes that come through. I think you know for anyone listening, it's you know be ask the questions, and if you know if you don't want something like that to come through, then I think work with someone to make it better. I think the it's only going to come through by more people getting involved. Yeah, I mean, and of course we don't always act rationally, do we? Um, even if so, if someone did say, "Oh, this building's going to make you better," it might. Some people might just deliberately not <laughs> not want to be happy because someone's trying to make them. It, human behavior can yeah. be quite complex. Uh, final yeah. question for you from the floor. Um, do you have any studies of high crime urban cities? I guess sort of maybe thinking along the lines of, do, do you think this, um, you know, what what you're doing in terms of applying neuroscience could help reduce crime? So one of the examples that we have referenced, um, I, I, crime is crime is a massive, massive uh, field. Uh, so I'll, I'll try and split it into two. I never give a mini answer, so sorry about this, but two, two approaches. One of the case studies that we often look at is the city of Medellin in Colombia, uh, where post, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, who was the drug lord? It's just dropped out of my head. The... Um, Chavez. No, no. Escobar, it was. Escobar, Escobar, there oh. we go. <laughs> they um the, the city was completely detached there were ghettos that had formed and as such this isolation between the cities were causing social fra uh, social fractions and what these sort of urban planners and the urban engineers realized was that it took hours and hours to get people from these sort of deprived neighborhoods that were up on the hill into the into city center and so their mechanism was to improve transport from one area to the other and the results are that Medellin is actually one of the you know, safest most culturally rich cities at the moment as it climbs out of its headache so um, on a micro scale where neuroscience can become useful is perhaps looking at uh, it, it's it's a it, I go back to that lens to understand people so you know if we if we don't think about neuroscience as just cell movement in the brain and, and a piece of device looking at that if we look at it cognitively um, some of the things we're looking at um, and that um, Araceli from our team is looking at is how you know what how do our how are people attaining information about what they're looking at in a city and what are they paying attention to you know, are they paying attention to the opportunities that are around them? Are they paying attention to the difficulties of perhaps getting somewhere? Are they paying attention to actually, well, you know, those those two massive roads are actually blocking us from getting to the other side of the road. And in East London, um, we, we were told that you've, you've got uh, an area called Poplar, which is sadly one of the most deprived areas of, of London. Um, it's also just across, I can't remember the motorway, uh, I think it's the A13, um, and just the other side of that, which is a three-lane motorway on each side, is Canary Wharf. And so as the crow flies, it's such little distance, but to actually get there, it's as if they are different people. It's They are second-class citizens to those across the road from them in the same borough. So when we start to look at crime and, and social behavior, you have to start looking at, well, what are the social mechanisms? What are the physical mechanisms that might be influencing 
perhaps their psychology so their their perception of their environment so are they perceiving themselves as second class and is that invoking different reactions and this is where i said that neuroscience is part of the school of psychology is it does give us a mechanical view to look at the you know, the field of psychology and then neuroscience might then go okay well how are we going to devise the most effective way to look at transport between these two areas if we think that this is actually the problem that we're looking at because we've determined all the other problems aren't as apparent as this one um, you start to look at well do we want to work on cycle navigation what does that mean for these demographics what if it's twisty and windy is it difficult to get through and so when looking at antisocial behavior i think you have to look quite macro um, and start to ask questions about why these problems might be occurring um, sometimes it's simpler sometimes it might be that someone just doesn't feel that they're worthy in their environment if you don't feel that you are worth the environment how many people put their feet up with their shoes on, on their kitchen table you don't because that's your environment that's a place that you care about you're under control but when you're often in an environment in which you don't care about where you feel it doesn't care about you do you care i can't answer that question i you know half you know kind of cockedly i am answering that question but i'm not trying to it's these are the questions you have to say that actually what are we doing to making someone's perception of their environment respond um, in different behavioral forms and some of those might be sort of antisocial and crime uh, reactions mm. yeah great answer josh uh, thank you so much if some if people want to get hold of you uh, how can they do that what's the best way sure um, you can find me ranting away on Twitter that my handles at Josh underscore artist A-R-T-U-S. Um, our company website is thecentriclab.com. And if you're into reading more about sort of urbanism um, and ideas around that, then uh, our website for Conscious Cities is, the, is C Cities, that's the letter C Cities.org. Um, and we're there equally. If you just want to send me an email, it's Josh at thecentriclab.com. So yeah, James, thank you very much no, uh, you. for having me on. And as I said before, we've recorded this and I will be posting it on SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, so please go and subscribe to all of our content there. So you just need to search for Smart Building Series. And also I'll be posting the audio and the show notes on our website. Uh, and just finish off by saying thank you to Project Haystack, our sponsors obviously to Josh as well. And just um, to let you guys know that we're back in the new year in January. We've got a uh, webinar planned for the end of the month and we're going to be looking at the humble DDC controller for HVAC and how we might be able to reinvent that in this kind of new data, big data, data analytics world. So that should be interesting as well. So yeah, have a great Christmas, everybody, and look forward to seeing you in the new year. Bye-bye.